0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Tonight, I will be continuing the story, Journey to the Center of the Earth, by Jules Verne. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 8. Serious Preparations for Vertical Descent Altana which is but a suburb of Hamburg, is the terminus of the Kiel Railway, which was to carry us to the Belts. In twenty minutes, we were in Holstein. At half-past six, the carriage stopped at the station. My uncle's numerous packages, his voluminous impedimenta, were unloaded, removed, labelled, weighed, put into the luggage vans, and at seven, we were seated face-to-face in our compartment. The whistle sounded, the engine started, we were off. Was I resigned? No, not yet. Yet the cool morning air and the scenes on the road, rapidly changed by the swiftness of the train, drew me away somewhat from my sad reflections. As for the professor's reflections, they went far in advance of the swiftest express. We were alone in the carriage, but we sat in silence. My uncle examined all his pockets and his travelling bag with the minutest care. I saw that he had not forgotten the smallest matter of detail. Among other documents, a sheet of paper, carefully folded, bore the heading of the Danish consulate with the signature of W. Christensen, consul at Hamburg, and the professor's friend. With this, we possessed the proper introductions to the governor of Iceland. I also observed the famous document most carefully laid up in a secret pocket in his portfolio. I bestowed a malediction upon it, and then proceeded to examine the country. It was a very long succession of uninteresting, loamy, and fertile flats, a very easy country for the construction of railways, and propitious for the laying down of these direct level lines so dear to railway companies. I had no time to get tired of the monotony, for in three hours we stopped at Kiel, close to the sea. The luggage being labelled for Copenhagen, we had no occasion to look after it. Yet the professor watched every article with jealous vigilance, until all were safe on board. There they disappeared in the hold. My uncle, notwithstanding his hurry, had so well calculated the relations between the train and the steamer that we had a whole day to spare. The steamer, Eleonora, did not start until night. Thence sprang a feverish state of excitement in which the impatient, irascible traveller devoted to perdition the railway directors and the steamboat companies and the governments that allowed such intolerable slowness. I was obliged to act course to him when he attacked the captain of the Eleonora upon this subject. The captain disposed of us summarily. At Kiel, as elsewhere, we must do something to while away the time. What with walking on the verdant shores of the bay within which nestles the little town, exploring the thick woods that make it look like a nest embowered among thick foliage, admiring the villas, each provided with a little bathing house, and moving about and grumbling, at last ten o'clock came. The heavy coils of smoke from the Eleanor's funnel unrolled in the sky. The bridge shook with the quivering of the struggling steam. We were on board, and owners for the time of two berths, one over the other, in the only saloon cabin on board. At quarter past, the moorings were loosed, and the throbbing steamer pursued her way over the dark waters of the Great Belt. The night was dark. There was a sharp breeze and a rough sea. A few lights appeared on shore through the darkness. Later on, I cannot tell when, a dazzling light from some lighthouse threw a bright stream of fire along the waves. And this is all I can remember of this first portion of our sail. At seven in the morning, we landed at Korsor, a small town on the west coast of Zealand. There we were transferred from the boat to another line of railway, which took us by just as flat a country as the plain of Holstein. Three hours travelling brought us to the capital of Denmark. My uncle had not shut his eyes all night. In his impatience, I believe he was trying to accelerate the train with his feet. At last he discerned a stretch of sea. The sound, he cried. At our left was a huge building that looked like a hospital. That's a lunatic asylum, said one of our travelling companions. Very good, thought I. Just the place we want to end our days in and great as it is that asylum is not big enough to contain all Professor Liedenbrock's madness. At ten in the morning, at last, we set our feet in Copenhagen. The luggage was put upon a carriage and taken with ourselves to the Phoenix Hotel in Gate. This took half an hour, for the station is out of the town. Then my uncle, after a hasty toilet, dragged me after him. The porter at the hotel could speak German and English, But the professor, as a polyglot, questioned him in good Danish, and it was in the same language that that personage directed him to the Museum of Northern Antiquities. The curator of this curious establishment, in which wonders are gathered together, out of which the ancient history of the country might be reconstructed by means of its stone weapons, its cups, and its jewels, was a learned savant, the friend of the Danish consul at Hamburg, Professor Thomson. My uncle had a cordial letter of introduction to him. As a general rule, one savant greets another with coolness, but here the case was different. Mr. Thompson, like a good friend, gave the Professor Liedenbrock a cordial greeting, and he even vouchsafed the same kindness to his nephew. It is hardly necessary to say the secret was sacredly kept from the excellent curator. We were simply disinterested travellers visiting Iceland out of harmless curiosity. Mr. Thompson placed his services at our disposal, and we visited the quays with the object of finding out the next vessel to sail. I was yet in hopes that there would be no means of getting to Iceland. But there was no such luck. A small Danish schooner, the Valkyria, was set to set sail for Reykjavik on the 2nd of June. The captain, Mr. Bjarna, was on board. His intending passenger was so joyful, that he almost squeezed his hands till they ached. That good man was rather surprised at his energy. To him it seemed a very simple thing to go to Iceland, as that was his business, but to my uncle it was sublime. The worthy captain took advantage of his enthusiasm to charge a double fares, but we did not trouble ourselves about mere trifles. He must be on board on Tuesday, at seven in the morning, said Captain Bjarna, after having pocketed more dollars than were his due. Then we thanked Mr. Thompson for his kindness, and we returned to the Phoenix Hotel. "'It's all right, it's all right,' my uncle repeated. "'How fortunate we are to have found this boat ready for sailing. "'Now let us have some breakfast and go about the town.' We went first to Nitor, an irregular square in which are two innocent-looking guns, which need not alarm anyone. Close by, at number five, there was a French restaurant, kept by a cook of the name of Vincent, where we had an ample breakfast for four marks each. Then I took a childish pleasure in exploring the city. My uncle let me take him with me. But he took notice of nothing. Neither the insignificant king's palace, nor the pretty seventeenth-century bridge which spans the canal before the museum, nor that immense cenotaph, adorned with horrible mural painting, and containing within it a collection of the sculptor's works, nor, in a fine park, the toy-like Chateau of Rosenberg, nor the beautiful Renaissance edifice of the Exchange, nor its spire composed of the twisted tails of four bronze dragons, nor the great windmill on the ramparts, whose huge arms dilated in the sea breeze like the sails of a ship. What delicious walks we should have had together my pretty Verlandes and I, along the harbour where the two-deckers and the frigate slept peaceably, by the red roofing of the warehouse, by the green banks of the strait, through the deep shades of the trees among which the fort is half-concealed, where the guns are thrusting out their black throats between branches of alder and willow. But alas, Groyban was far away, and I never hoped to see her again but if my uncle felt no attraction towards these romantic scenes, he was very much struck with the aspect of a certain church spire situated in the island of Amak, which forms the southwest quarter of Copenhagen. I was ordered to direct my feet that way. I embarked on a small steamer that plies in the canals, and in a few minutes she touched the quay of the dockyard. After crossing a few narrow streets where some convicts in trousers half yellow and half grey were at work under the orders of the foreman, we arrived at Vorfelser's There was nothing remarkable about the church, but there was a reason why its tall spire had attracted the professor's attention. Starting from the top of the tower, an external staircase wound around the spire, the spirals circling up into the sky. Let us get to the top, said my uncle. I shall be dizzy, I said the more reason why we should go up. We must get used to it. But, come, I tell you, don't waste our time. I had to obey. A keeper who lived at the other end of the street handed us the key, and the ascent began. My uncle went ahead with a light step. I followed him, not without alarm, for my head was very apt to feel dizzy. I possessed neither the equilibrium of an eagle, nor his fearless nature. As long as we were protected on the inside of the winding staircase of the tower, all was well enough. But after toiling up a hundred and fifty steps, the fresh air came to salute my face, and we were on the leads of the tower. There the aerial staircase began its gyrations, only guarded by a thin iron rail, and the narrowing steps seemed to ascend into infinite space. Never shall I be able to do it, I said. Don't be a coward. Come up, sir said my uncle with the coldest cruelty. I had to follow, clutching at every step. The keen air made me giddy. I felt the spire rocking with every gust of wind. My knees began to fail. Soon I was crawling on my knees, then creeping on my stomach. I closed my eyes. I seemed to be lost in space. At last I reached the apex with the assistance of my uncle dragging me up by the collar. Look down, he cried. Look down well. You must take a lesson in abysses. I opened my eyes. I saw houses squashed flat as if they had fallen down from the skies. A smoke fog seemed to drown them. Over my head, ragged clouds were drifting past, and by an optical inversion they seemed stationary, while the steeple, the ball, and I were all spinning along with fantastic speed. Far away on one side was the green country. On the other, the sea sparkled, bathed in sunlight. The sound stretched away to Elsinore, dotted with a few white sails like seagulls' wings. And in the misty east and away to the northeast lay outstretched the faintly shadowed shores of Sweden. All this immensity of space whirled and wavered, fluctuating beneath my eyes. But I was compelled to rise, to stand up, to look. My first lesson in dizziness lasted an hour. When I got permission to come down and Feel the solid street pavements, I was afflicted with severe lumbago. Tomorrow we will do it again, said the professor. And it was so. For five days in succession, I was obliged to undergo this anti-vertiginous exercise. And whether I would or not, I made some improvement in the art of lofty contemplations. Chapter 9 Iceland but what next? The day for our departure arrived. The day before it, our kind friend Mr. Thompson brought us letters of introduction to Count Trampa, the governor of Iceland, Mr. Picterson, the bishop suffragan, and Mr. Finson, the mayor of Reykjavik. My uncle expressed his gratitude by tremendous compressions of both his hands. On the second, at six in the evening, all our precious baggage being safely on board the Valkyria. The captain took us into a very narrow cabin. Is the wind favourable? my uncle asked. Excellent, replied Captain Bjarne. A southwester. We shall pass down the sound full speed with all sail set. In a few minutes the schooner, under her mizzen, brigantine, top sail and top gallant sail, "'loosed from her moorings and made full sail through the straits. "'In an hour, the capital of Denmark seemed to sink below the distant waves, "'and the Valkyria was skirting the coast of Elsinore. "'In my nervous frame of mind, I expected to see the ghost of Hamlet "'wandering on the legendary castle terrace. "'Sublime madman,' I said. "'No doubt you would approve of our expedition. "'Perhaps you would keep his company to the centre of the globe.' to find the solution of your eternal doubts. There is no ghostly shape upon the ancient walls. Indeed, the castle is much younger than the heroic Prince of Denmark, and now answers the purpose of a sumptuous lodge for the doorkeeper of the Straits of the Sound, before which every year there pass fifteen thousand ships of all nations. The castle of Kronborg soon disappeared in the mist, as well as the tower of Helsingborg, built on the Swedish coast, and the schooner passed lightly on her way urged by the breezes of the Kattegat. The Valkyria was a splendid sailor, but on a sailing vessel you can place no dependence. She was taken to Reykjavik, coal, household goods, earthenware, woolen clothing, and a cargo of wheat. The crew consisted of five men, all Danes. How long will the passage take? My uncle asked. Ten days, the captain replied. "'if we don't meet a northwester in passing the Faroes, "'But are you not subject to considerable delays?' "'No, Mr. Liedenbrock. Don't be uneasy. "'We shall get there in very good time.' "'At evening, the schooner doubled the skull "'at the northern point of Denmark. "'In the night, passed the Skager Rack, "'skirted Norway, by the Cape, and entered the North Sea. "'In two days more, we sighted the coast of Scotland "'near Peterhead and the Valkyria turned her lead towards the Faroe Islands, passing between the Orkneys and Shetlands. Soon the schooner encountered the great Atlantic swell. She had to tack against the north wind and reached the Faroes only with some difficulty. On the 8th, the captain made out to Michenez, the southernmost of these islands, and from that moment took a straight course for Cape Portland, the most southerly point of Iceland. The passage was marked by nothing unusual. I bore the troubles of the sea pretty well. My uncle, to his disgust and shame, was ill all through the voyage. He therefore was unable to converse with the captain about Snaefell, the way to get to it, the facilities for transport. He was obliged to put off these inquiries until his arrival and spent all his time at full length in his cabin, of which the timbers creaked and shook with every pitch she took. It must be confessed he was not undeserving of his punishment. On the 11th, we reached Cape, Portland. The clear open air gave us a good view of Myrdal Yokel, which overhangs it. The Cape is merely a low hill with steep sides, standing lonely by the beach. The Valkyria kept at some distance from the coast, taking a westerly course amid great shoals of whales and sharks. Soon we came in sight of an enormous perforated rock, through which the sea dashed furiously the westman islets seemed to rise out of the ocean like a group of rocks in a liquid plain. From that time, the schooner took a wide berth and swept at a great distance round Cape Regianus, which forms the western point of Iceland. The rough sea prevented my uncle from coming on deck to admire these shattered and surf-beaten coasts. Forty-eight hours after, coming out of a storm that forced the schooner to scud under bare poles, we sighted east of us the beacon on Cape Skagen, where dangerous rocks extend far away seaward. An Icelandic pilot came on board and in three hours the Valkyria dropped her anchor before Reykjavik in Faxa Bay. The professor at last emerged from his cabin, rather pale and wretched-looking, but still full of enthusiasm and with ardent satisfaction shining in his eyes. The population of the town, wonderfully interested in the arrival of a vessel from which everyone expected something, formed in groups upon the quay. My ankle left in haste his floating prison, or rather hospital. But before quitting the deck of the schooner, he dragged me forward, and pointing with outstretched finger, north of the bay at a distant mountain, terminating in a double peak, a pair of cones covered with perpetual snow, he cried, Snaefell, Snaefell, then recommending me, by an impressive gesture to keep silence, he went into the boat that awaited him. I followed, and presently we were treading the soil of Iceland. The first man we saw was a good-looking fellow enough in a general's uniform, yet he was not a general but a magistrate, the governor of the island, Mr. Le Baron Trampa himself. The professor was soon aware of the presence he was in. He delivered him his letters from Copenhagen, and then followed a short conversation in the Danish language, the purport of which I was quite ignorant of, and for a good reason. But the result of this first conversation was that Baron Trampa placed himself entirely at the service of Professor Lidenbrock. My uncle was just as courteously received by the mayor, Mr. Fenson, whose appearance was as military and disposition and office as specific as the governor's. As for the Bishop Suffragan, Mr. Picterson, he was at that moment engaged on an Episcopal visitation in the north. For the time we must be resigned to wait for the honour of being presented to him. But Mr. Friedrikson, professor of natural sciences at the School of Reykjavik, was a delightful man, and his friendship became very precious to me. This modest philosopher spoke only Danish and Latin. He came to proffer me his good offices in the language of Horace, and I felt that we were made to understand each other. In fact, he was the only person in Iceland with whom I could converse at all. This good-natured gentleman made over to us two of the three rooms that his house contained, and we were soon installed in it with all our luggage, the abundance of which rather astonished the good people of Reykjavik. "'Well, Axel,' said my uncle, "'we are getting on, and now the worst is over.' "'The worst?' I said astonished. "'To be sure. Now we have nothing to do but go down.' Oh, if that is all, you're quite right, but, after all, when we have gone down, we shall have to get up again, I suppose. Oh, I don't trouble myself about that. Come, there's no time to lose. I'm going to the library. Perhaps there is some manuscript of Sacknesum's there, and I should be glad to consult it. Well, while you are there, I will go into the town, won't you? Oh, that is very uninteresting to me. It is not what is upon this island, but what is underneath that interests me. I went out and wandered wherever chance took me. It would not be easy to lose your way in the two streets of Reykjavik. I was therefore under no necessity to inquire the road, which exposes one to mistakes when the only medium of communication is gestures. The town extends along a low and marshy level between two hills. An immense bed of lava bounds it on one side and falls gently towards the sea. On the other extends the vast Bay of Faxa, shut in at the north by the enormous glacier of the Snaefell, and of which the Valkyria was for the time the only occupant. Usually the English and French conservators of fisheries moor in this bay, but just then they were cruising about the western coasts of the island. The longest of the only two streets that Reykjavik possesses was parallel with the beach. Here of the merchants and traders in wooden cabins made of red planks set horizontally. The other street, running west, ends at the little lake between the house of the bishop and the other non-commercial people. I had soon explored these melancholy ways. Here and there I got a glimpse of faded turf, looking like a worn-out bit of carpet, or some appearance of a kitchen garden, the sparse vegetables of which, potatoes, cabbages and lettuces, would have figured appropriately upon a little push in table. A few sickly wallflowers were trying to enjoy the air and sunshine. About the middle of the non-commercial street I found the public cemetery, enclosed with a mud wall, and where there seemed plenty of room. Then a few steps brought me to the governor's house, a hovel compared with the town hall of Hamburg, a palace in comparison with the cabins of the Icelandic population. Between the little lake and the town, The church is built in the Protestant style of calcined stones extracted out of the volcanoes by their own labor and at their own expense. In high westerly winds, it was manifest that the red tiles of the roof would be scattered in the air, to the great danger of the faithful worshippers. On a neighboring hill, I perceived the National School, where, as I was informed later by our host, were taught Hebrew, English, French, and Danish, four languages of which With shame, I confess it, I don't know a single word. After an examination, I should have had to stand last of the forty scholars educated at this little college, and I should have been held unworthy to sleep along with them in one of those little double closets where more delicate youths would have died of suffocation the very first night. In three hours, I had seen not only the town but its environs. The general aspect was wonderfully dull. No trees and scarcely any vegetation. Everywhere bare rocks, signs of volcanic action. The Icelandic huts are made of earth and turf, and the walls slope inward. They rather resemble roofs placed on the ground. But then these roofs are meadows of comparative fertility, thanks to the internal heat. The grass grows on them to some degree of perfection. It is carefully mown in the hay season. If it were not, the horses would come to pasture on these green abodes. In my excursion I met but few people. On returning to the main street, I found the greater part of the population busied in drying, salting, and putting on board codfish, their chief export. The men looked like robust but heavy, blonde Germans with pensive eyes, conscious of being far removed from their fellow creatures. Poor exiles relegated to this land of ice. Poor creatures who would have been Eskimos, since nature condemned them to live only just outside the Arctic Circle. In vain did I try to detect a smile upon their lips, sometimes by a spasmodic and involuntary contraction of the muscles. They seemed to laugh, but they never smiled. Their costume consisted of a coarse jacket of black woolen cloth called in Scandinavian lands a vadmel, a hat with a very broad brim, trousers with a narrow edge of red, and a bit of leather rolled round the foot for shoes. The women looked as sad and as resigned as the men. Their faces were agreeable but expressionless, and they wore gowns and petticoats of dark badmill. If maidens, they wore over their braided hair a little knitted brown cap. When married, they put around their heads a coloured handkerchief, crowned with a peak of white linen. After a good walk, I returned to Mr. Friedrichsen's house, where I found my uncle already in his host's company. Chapter 10 Interesting Conversations with Icelandic Savants Dinner was ready. Professor Liedenbrock devoured his portion voraciously, for his compulsory fast on board had converted his stomach into a vast unfathomable gulf. There was nothing remarkable in the meal itself, but the hospitality of our host, more Danish than Icelandic, reminded me of the heroes of old. It was evident that we were more at home than he was himself. The conversation was carried on in the vernacular tongue, which my uncle mixed with German and Mr. Friedrichson with Latin for my benefit. It turned upon scientific questions as befits philosophers, but Professor Liedenbrock was excessively reserved, and at every sentence spoke to me with his eyes, enjoining the most absolute silence upon our plans. In the first place, Mr. Friedrichson wanted to know what success my uncle had had at the library. Your library? Why, there's nothing but a few tattered books upon almost deserted shelves. Indeed, replied Mr. Fridrickson, why, we possess 8,000 volumes, many of them valuable and scarce, works in the old Scandinavian language, and we have all the novelties that Copenhagen sends us every year. Where do you keep your 8,000 volumes, for my part? Oh, Mr. Ludenbrock, they are all over the country. In this icy region we are fond of study. There is not a farmer nor a fisherman that cannot read and does not read. Our principle is that books, instead of growing mouldy behind an iron grating, should be worn out under the eyes of many readers. Therefore, these volumes are passed from one to another, read over and over, referred to again and again, and it often happens that they find their way back to our shelves only after an absence of a year or two. And in the meantime, said my uncle rather spitefully, strangers, Well, what would you have? Foreigners have their libraries at home, and the first essential for laboring people is that they should be educated. I repeat to you, the love of reading runs in the Icelandic blood. In 1816, we founded a prosperous literary society. Learned strangers think themselves honored in becoming members of it. It publishes books that educate our fellow countrymen and do the country great service. If you will consent to be a corresponding member, Herr Liedenbrock, You'll be given us great pleasure. My uncle, who had already joined about a hundred learned societies, accepted with a grace that evidently touched Mr. Friedrichsen. Now, said he, will you be kind enough to tell me what books you hoped to find in our library, and I may perhaps enable you to consult them? My uncle's eyes and mine met. He hesitated. This direct question went to the root of the matter. After a moment's reflection, he decided on speaking. Monsieur Friedrichsen, I wish to know if among your ancient books you possessed any of the works of Arne Sacknesum. Arne Sacknesum, replied the Reykjavik professor. You mean that learned sixteenth-century savant, a naturalist, a chemist, and a traveller? Just so. One of the glories of Icelandic literature and science? That's the man. An illustrious man anywhere? Quite so and whose courage was equal to his genius? I see that you know him well. My uncle was bathed in delight at hearing his hero thus described. He feasted his eyes upon Mr. Friedrichson's face. Well, he cried, where are his works? His works? We have them not. What? Not in Iceland? They are neither in Iceland nor anywhere. Why is that? Because Arne Saknussemm was persecuted for heresy and in 1573 his books were burned by the hands of the common hangman. Very good, excellent, cried my uncle, to the great scandal of the professor of natural history. What? he cried. Yes, yes, now it is all clear, now it is all unravelled. And I see why Sacknessum, put in the index expurgatorious, and compelled to hide the discoveries made by his genius, was obliged to bury in an incomprehensible cryptogram. The secret. What secret? asked Mr. Fredrickson, starting. Oh, just a secret which... My uncle stammered. Have you some private document in your possession? asked our host. No. I was only supposing a case. Oh, very well, answered Mr. Fredrickson, who was kind enough not to pursue the subject when he had noticed the embarrassment of his friend. I hope you will not leave our island until you have seen some of its mineralogical wealth. Certainly, replied my uncle. But I am rather late, or have not others been here before me? Yes, Herr lady Brock, the labors of Monsieur Olufsen and Povelson, pursued by the Order of the King, the researches of Troil, and the scientific mission of Messrs. Gamard and Robert on the French corvette La Recherche, and lately, the observations of scientific men who came in the Ren Hortense have added materially to our knowledge of Iceland. But I assure you, there's plenty left to discover. Do you think so? said my uncle, pretending to look very modest, and trying to hide the curiosity that was flashing out of his eyes. Oh yes, how many mountains, glaciers, and volcanoes there are to study, which are as yet but imperfectly known. Then, without going any further, Mountain in the horizon. That is Snaefell. Ah, said my uncle as coolly as he was able. Is that Snaefell? Yes. One of the most curious volcanoes, and the crater of which has scarcely ever been visited. Is it extinct? Oh, yes, more than five hundred years. Well, replied my uncle, who was frantically locking his legs together to keep himself from jumping up in the air, that is where I mean to begin my geological studies. Theron Saffel Fessel. What do you call it? Snaefil, replied the excellent Mr. Friedrichsen. This part of the conversation was in Latin, I had understood every word of it, and I could hardly conceal my amusement at seeing my uncle trying to keep down the excitement and satisfaction that were brimming over in every limb and every feature. He tried hard to put on an innocent little expression of simplicity, but it looked like a diabolical grin. Yes, said he. Your words decide me. We will try to scale that snaffle. Perhaps even we may pursue our studies in its crater. I am very sorry, said Mr. Friedrichson, that my engagements will not allow me to absent myself, or I would have accompanied you myself with both pleasure and profit. Oh, no, no, replied my uncle with great animation. We would not disturb anyone for the world, Mr. Friedrichson. Still, I thank you with all my heart. The company of such a talented man would have been very serviceable, but the duties of your profession. I am glad to think that our host, in the innocence of his Icelandic soul, was blind to the transparent artifices of my uncle. I very much approve of your beginning with that volcano, Mr. Lidenbrook. You will gather a harvest of interesting observations. But tell me, how do you expect to get to the peninsula of Snaefell? I see, crossing the bay, that's the most direct way. No doubt, but it is impossible. Why? Because we don't possess a single boat at Reykjavik. You don't mean to say so? You will have to go by land, following the shore. It will be longer, but more interesting. Very well, then. And now I shall have to see about a guide. I have one to offer you. A safe, intelligent man. Yes, an inhabitant of that peninsula. He's an Ederdam hunter, and very clever. He speaks Danish perfectly. When can I see him? Tomorrow, if you like. Why not today? Because he won't be here until tomorrow. Tomorrow, then, added my uncle with a sigh. This momentous conversation ended in a few minutes with warm acknowledgments paid by the German to the Icelandic professor. At this dinner, my uncle had just elicited important facts, among others the history of Sacknessum, the reason for the mysterious document, that his host would not accompany him in his expedition, and that the very next day a guide would be waiting upon him. Good night.